you need less customers to start. You only need one big one as opposed to, you know, a million small ones, individuals. But it doesn't spread virally, yeah? You've got to pick up the phone. It's 100 phone calls a day, you know? Welcome to SaaS Origin Stories. Tune in to hear authentic conversations with founders as they share stories from the earlier days of their SaaS startups. We'll cover painful challenges, early wins, and actionable takeaways. You'll hear firsthand the do's and don'ts of building and growing a SaaS, as well as inspirational stories to fuel you on your own SaaS journey. Here is your host, Phil Alves. Hi, guys. Today I'm chatting with Dan McGregor, the co-founder of Nexiot. Welcome to the show, Dan. Hey, how's it going? Been great. So we are here to chat a little bit about the origin story of your company today. And the question that I like to start the show with is tell us a little bit about your backstory and how you come up with the idea. Yeah, so um, I basically, um, I come from north, uh, north of England. And, uh, you know, since I was a kid, I was fascinated in technology and uh, I wanted to make a big impact with my life. I didn't want to you know, just sort of uh, make one of these careers all about making money. It's all about, you know, bringing new uh, new things that the human that humans and the planet needs, um, you know, to optimize uh, the way that we live, the way that we use our resources and the way that we interact with each other. And um, so I actually started out as a, as a headhunter. So uh, when you're a headhunter, you know, the sort of the first day they say, there's a phone, there's a desk. Uh, there's a computer, make some money. If not, then you're fired, you know. So uh, <laughs> it's a pretty tough uh, tough learning curve there. But you realize that, you know, with those basic tools and with a bit of initiative, you can ask the right questions, you can contact the right people, and you can make things happen. So it was a really good, um, you know, background uh, to have uh, to think about, you know, uh, moving into tech entrepreneurial uh, activities. And, uh, you know, clearly um, there were lots of things that needed to be addressed. And I was just wasn't sure why it wasn't possible. Um, you know, we get into a little bit more maybe later about, you know, what Nexiot does. Um, but uh, ultimately, um, you know, there were questions in my head buzzing around uh, that I needed answers to. And I wanted to, to get those answers and ask, ask the questions of the people that, that might need those solutions. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit more about that. First, how does those questions come to your head? Because I'm a big believer on founder market fit. So like it's your experiences, it's what you go through that makes you the right person to solve problem X or problem Y. So I would love to kind of get deeper and understand how, how those questions got to your head and, and what was your experiences? Yeah, so I mean, uh, it's a interesting, uh, you know, it's an interesting journey, uh, and uh, I suppose the questions are not necessarily fully formed ever. Uh, you're constantly learning and evolving, and you have to understand, um, you know, that we really don't know what we don't yet know. <laughs> so, you know, when we ask a great question of somebody who does know something that we don't know, um, it gives us a chance to. Uh, you can either say, oh, well, that will confirm my previous biases or it will explode my previous biases. And if I'm able to be humble enough, um, I will question my preconceptions and I'll actually integrate the new discoveries and evolve with my question asking and ask a better question next time. So in a way, it's always about thinking about your question, asking a better question. And how we phrase a question is very important. So open questions, what, why, who, where, how, uh, you know, that's the right way to start a question 
uh, if you really want to discover new things. And then we can rephrase that question back to them. So you're telling me this, is that true? And then it's a closed question, yes or no. If it's not, if they don't say yes, then we say back into the open question. So what, where, how, why, how, where, when. So, uh, you know, this is the kind of the game that you go back and forth. And each time you're adding a layer to your understanding. Um, and, you know, if you ask a question uh, of a traditional industry and, we, you know, Nexiot addresses um, challenges in the supply chain and logistics space. And if you ask a question and when I found, you know, co-founded the company back in, uh, you know, 2015, um, you know, supply chain wasn't such a hot topic. It was pre-COVID and people weren't aware of the impact that it has on their lives. Um, so, you know, if you ask a question, what would you really like to see in technology? They won't be able to answer that. But if you ask the question, you know, why something doesn't work properly today and, and what they would like it to, how they would like it to work in an ideal world, then you can go into the domain knowledge and then you can go into the strategic side and then you can, you know, calibrate the right question and then get towards the truth. Because not everyone, if you think about Henry Ford, you know, he said, what do you want? The faster horse. And obviously, nobody could imagine the combustion engine and a motor car with a, you know, a gear mechanism and a steering wheel and because that was Henry Ford's job. But he understood the need for, for personal transportation was growing and he understood the limitations of an animal to make that possible. So, you know, that's maybe an anecdote. Yeah, I love that quote from Ford. Because when we are building products, that's all we have to think about. We have to ask questions, understand the world. I like the keyword that you say, discovery. You're doing a discovery. So people are not going to tell you exactly what they want, but you will figure out by asking the right questions. I think another thing uh, that's interesting is the number of different stakeholders that need to be involved in that. Yeah, Because actually, um, it's very difficult uh, to... Uh, you know, to make a product that impacts many different parties um, and and to make sure that it's going to be an, a significant adoption on a significant scale, uh, because we live in a highly complex, you know, multifaceted world with multiple stakeholders, multiple different uh, points of view. And therefore, you know, we've got to really, you know, think about uh, you know, how we bring those things together and how we consolidate that information into something that's workable for many different parties. Yeah. So, so tell me a little bit like what's that you discovery when you're doing the research and the led you to build the version one of your product? And what does the version one did? Because I understand version one, like many years ago, is very different than what you have today. Like you say, the question keep developing. But walk me through the process of actually getting to a version one idea. Yeah, so so uh, naivety is your friend, Phil, in those early days. Yeah, because, you know, if you... I remember first investors laughing in my face, you know, that you're crazy, you, you think you can do this. Why wouldn't this be done by, uh, you know, Siemens or IBM or, or Google or somebody like this? Um, but, you know, obviously that kind of, you know, naivety. So version one starts with in incredible naivety, you know, why not? Um, and then, you know, maybe it starts with kind of the realization and, you know, without going into too much details about the journey at this point, but um, the realization that we've had a mobile phone in our pocket for 35 years, we've had GPS in our car for nearly 40 years. And, and yet, you know, we've got 30 million shipping containers traveling around the world that don't have any monitoring technology on them. It doesn't make sense. You know, you can track your pet in the in the garden, your child on the way to school, your luggage in the airport, and your pizza to your front door, but you can't track a container across the planet. This doesn't make sense. So there's almost an outrage uh, about that, yeah? And then it's, 
you know, getting into, you know, why something does or doesn't exist. Well, there's lots of reasons for that. You know, the technology needs to come of age. Uh, it's a bit like cooking with technology. You know that this is possible. You know that that's possible. So why isn't it possible to put those things together? And it's not necessary to, to know, you know, every bit of how to do that. But it's necessary to know that in principle, it would be possible. And if you can then, you know, mock up a, a one pager and put it in front of somebody who works in the industry and say, you know, would this help you? Or, you know, could you imagine that being useful? Um, you know, this is kind of maybe a starting point to start that, get that discussion rolling. Um, going back to the product itself, you know, what we had in our portfolio, in our sort of capabilities, our toolbox, uh, I, I was working with a co my co-founder, who's a brilliant inventor, um, you know, it, it putting things together in new ways, always sort of breaking things and trying things in different ways. And we had ultra low power embedded hardware. We had energy harvesting, complex systems, you know, sort of the big data side, and then analytics and algorithms. And, you know, with this sort of basic tools, toolkit, it's easy to make a first version. But that first version in terms of form factor for a hardware device went through, you know, many hundreds of iterations. And you make realizations about the standards that are needed in terms of safety, reliability, quality, um, you know, uh, security um, and usability for the industry. But that's done when you start working with the potential clients to realize that first version. But the naivety was, you know, there's, there's 30 million shipping containers in the world. If we can, if we can produce a million devices and sell them to one of the shipping lines, job done. Great. Yeah, that's already good. So that was the kind of the first step. But then we learned a lot about platform, about the need to play with the data because the clients maybe weren't so sophisticated as we first imagined. I want to dive deeper into actually building that, the hardware, the software working together. But before we get into that, like what is kind of like the one liner, like what problem you're trying to solve uh, for, for your customers? So like what was like, we're going to solve this one problem. What was that problem? Yeah, I mean, the problem, it, it would be different to different stakeholders. So who is the customer? Uh, even before you get to that point, you could ask the question, what is data? Yeah, is it zeros and ones? Or is it when you start to, you know, create value out of that data? And, you know, when we first, um, you know, so I, maybe we get into the story a little bit, you know, I don't want to sort of uh, jump the gun. But, um, you know, we said, okay, here we have a company like Maersk, and they don't have their, their, their normal dry shipping containers equipped with hardware. Why is this? And we realized that, you know, the devices were too expensive. Uh, they, it wasn't easy to set up, you know, the, it, the pairing process and, and integrating it. They didn't know what to do with the data. Um, they didn't know why it might be useful. <laughs> the, you know, the, the customer, who, who's their customer and how do they use that data? So, you know, it was a very sort of early days for this sort of digital ecosystem in the maritime space. And uh, it actually came down to this. We said, well, after we founded the company in 2015, we realized, well, we're going to run out of time pretty quickly. We've got a very you know, short runway and we've got expensive hardware to, where to produce. It's a long life cycle. You have lots of failures with hardware. You know, you're always... Um, 
you know, building a new device and realizing that suddenly there's a component that's no longer available or that something isn't going to meet a certain standard for maritime or the enclosure's not tough enough or something like this. So there's this like sort of practical, physical side to this side of things. But, um, you know, we actually said, well, OK, the shipping lines, they're not ready to buy. Freight rates were in the ground. Um, they didn't see the need for it. They didn't. They thought that their customers, they, could, they trained the, the shippers and the cargo owners to always expect a lower price. There was a race to the bottom in terms of pricing. So there wasn't enough margin there to actually afford. And they said to themselves, our clients won't pay for this at the very beginning. So we actually said, well, we flipped to rail because we've already got the sort of the hardware device now. And if they don't want to buy it, what's the difference between a rail car and a shipping container? Well, one's got wheels. It travels inland all the time and it's braking the whole time. Thing, you know, the things are going wrong. There's a lot of complexity, the moving parts. And we said, well, the maintenance case is clear. You know, they don't know how many kilometers or how many miles that their asset has done. How do they manage maintenance? One of them has done 5,000 kilometers. Another one's done 300,000 kilometers. They're both in a very different state over the five-year maintenance cycle. So actually, the first case was maintenance. But then gradually, as we worked with the customers, asking these open questions and getting to the bottom of their business and understanding the challenges they face, suddenly a whole array of requirements and expectations and demands from different areas of the business emerged. And also, it's a little bit difficult because these big companies that you deal with as a B2B, um, you know, SaaS or hardware-enabled software as a service provider, as it is in our case, um, when you deal with those, the, these organizations are intrinsically siloed. So we talk about the damage that is done by silos, but actually it's by design because you want to have some separation between, you know, the commercial team and the equipment team or the maintenance team in order to be strategically aligned and to manage these different different needs of the business. So actually, you know, you've got to break down those silos and speak to all the different stakeholders and also stakeholders outside the organization to make sure that they can sell this product onwards to their customers that then need it. But you've got to market this market making in a way. You've got to create that demand by education and discussion. So it's quite consultative. It's not like you say, oh, here's our product here, buy it. Thanks very much. And if you do that, if you take a hardware device and say, here, buy, buy 500,000 of these, and the next question is, you know, can, can we trust it? What can we do with the data? You know, how do we process that data? Uh, you know, where's the analytics for this? It's not in the transportation management system. It's not in the ERP. Oh, no, actually, you need to build a platform. And then we get into this interesting question of vertical versus horizontal when you're building a SaaS platform. So it looks like you pick your vertical, like my, you start with a vertical, which was let's help with the maintenance. But then inside there, there's a lot of other things that you could do. And then you start to go horizontal. Uh, and, and I believe any SaaS business is starting should pick a vertical and then go horizontal after. Yeah. Unless you have a lot of cash. So you can never have enough cash to go horizontal first <laughs> because there'll always be somebody else who's actually building that domain knowledge into their vertical. And that's extrapolated into the horizontal. So, you know, to the listeners out there who sort of trying to work out what's the difference, um, you know, basically you find a niche, you find a, a vertical niche, a, a specific market with a specific need, and you build a product to meet that. But by doing so, you're actually building out a platform that can be applied to lots of different things. And actually what you discover is when you go on that journey, that lots of B2B clients, lots of, uh, of corporations, they've tried multiple times to build their own platform. Um, 
but they're not necessarily sophisticated enough or they don't have the necessary combination of technologies or it's they're not their primary business. And because it's been held by a silo within their organization, it's intrinsically sort of defended against that natural flow towards the horizontal. So, you know, you need to keep that in mind that you want to make a, an immediate splash, uh, you know, in the market that you're addressing. But then it has to be scalable and extendable to other areas. And actually, the, you know, the brilliant thing for us is that it's started in rail um, and rail is a, has a massive need. There's five million rail cars in North American market that aren't equipped. There's, the, you know, when we started, there's one million rail cars in, in Europe and there's probably another three or four around the world. And, you know, there's so many use cases that are now jumping out at us because we've got such a, a, a you know, hardcore, heavy duty, you know, bulletproof, safe, secure, reliable, you know, large volumes of data tested uh, platform, which is much more than a repository, includes analytics. And then, you know, new customers come to us. We can talk about that later as well. That, that come and say, hey, wow, you know, you've got something really trustworthy here. And we've been looking for something like this. And, you know, and if it's good enough for these guys, then probably it's good enough for us. So how many verticals are you guys playing with nowadays? Well, you know, a, a bit of that story, you know, back to the very beginning, first investors, you know, you sit down there in the meeting, you know, with your with your with your to me bag and the first prototype of the hardware and and you know you've made, created a kind of a you know a rushed presentation and a few one pages and you sit there and you say I'm going to digitize the global supply chain and they throw their head back and they laugh at you and they say why would you be the guy to do that it doesn't seem possible and then you say well we'll see we're going to keep going and we see so you know from that point you know we um we realized that there's a lot of uh, reluctance to believe in something that's so massive. It's too uh, unbelievably big yeah, to think about. But actually, if you just follow the path, and I, I give this as maybe as a word of encouragement to anyone who's on this journey at the moment or interested in this journey, and that is, you know, you're learning as you go. And that each of those meetings, one of our meetings, the, the guy said he looked at a piece of hardware that would, did, didn't have a, a housing on it, and he said, that's not a product. And, you know, I, I, I left the meeting just before, you know, sort of we, we stormed out in despair. I left the meeting and said, what would make it a product in your mind or your eyes? And this is a critical point in each of these interactions. You say, what's missing? You know, what would you like to see? Because they've sometimes got a clue. And the guy said, it needs a housing. It needs a plastic box on it. Yeah. And then it's a product. Well, I'm delighted with that feedback. We make one in the on the 3D printer tomorrow and suddenly we've got a product and then we talk about what's inside the box and it can be anything, you know? So, so that's the kind of the, 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 it's the experiment. It's the not getting depressed by negative feedback, but it's actually integrating that into your own storytelling and understanding that the market needs to be educated, but also I need to be educated about how the market thinks. For sure. So you talk about how hard it was to convince investors to really believe in that big vision, Tell me a little bit more about how you fund it and the investors that say yes to, or how, how do you get the first uh, round of investment to, to get the company going? Yeah, so the first round was one of the co-founders and he was, uh, uh, you know, it was a uh, 100,000 100, bucks seed money just to, you know, 
just to say we kind of I kind of believe in you as part of a you know a, a diversification strategy I would say for a big investor um you know that it's a it's always good to have your uh you know sort of your fingers on the pulse of what's new you know something like this and it's it's small money for some somebody who manages a huge portfolio and then you know then uh you know as it as he became more convinced and more interested in the potential of such a thing you know obviously you know, if you read uh, Lean B2B, I recommend it very highly if you're in focusing on the B2B space. But any lean methodology is, is this iterative principle, search for a minimal viable product, uh, keep absorbing the feedback uh, and and look for recurring uh, revenues, look for scale and recurring revenues, scalability and recurring revenues. They're the principles of this, yeah? And then you go very, very fast towards the minimal viable product, and then you pivot and pivot and pivot according to each feedback round that comes from investors and from... And, you know, one of the early uh, investment talks, you know, we, we decided we needed to make a device that was absolutely bomb-proof, something incredibly heavy-duty to convince this supply chain space that we understood how how, how hardcore this, this, this industry is. So we made this device. We actually created a mold on a CNC machine. We made a, a, a silicon mold out of that, so the reverse of it. We poured in potting resin. We embedded our, our hardware into a little cradle and sunk it into the potting resin. So it's brutally heavy, like a, mesh, a, black, a black resin block. And one of the, our early meetings, we had family investors and the family slid the thing across the table. They were in the supply chain business. They're working in the ports, of, in the ports and terminals. And it, it actually went underneath the veneer on the boardroom table and it ripped up the boardroom table and damaged it. It had been 50 years in the boardroom. And, uh, and the, I was horrified. I thought, disaster, they're going to hate us for damaging the family boardroom. But actually, the guy turned around and said, see, I believe in this technology. See how tough it is. It destroyed our table. So, you know, it's by telling stories. It's by understanding the space that you're addressing. And it's by, you know, making it real and tangible and saying, showing the investors how motivated you are to follow this through. You know, they invest in people in the end and they invest in, in, in storytelling and great ideas. And the idea that they invest in at the very beginning it might they know it might not be what finally flies, but they can see the way that you're relentlessly pursuing what the perfect solution is for the market. So, so how much money did you guys raise it to get the things going? Uh, well, I mean, it was probably you know hundred thousand, then the first million, then the ten million, then the the fifty million ballpark, you know, into this direction. Now we've raised about one hundred and seventy something like this. Because hardware, it's kind of like an expensive game to play, right? I'll love to hear more about like. Yeah, but you show that you can do a lot. You show you can do a lot with little. That's the trick, yeah. So, you know, make sure that you're delivering incredible technology. And this is about being a little bit hacker style, you know, mentality, taking things that exist, not re redesigning the wheel, but taking, you know, principles and things that existed already and, and working on those. So, you know, I was very fortunate. I was working with my co-founder, who was a brilliant technician and brilliant engineer and very inventive person and and you know we were able to with my questioning and his technical skills to quickly make things real you know we were able to come up with minimal viable products on the hardware side quite quickly how long did it take how long they say quite quick uh i mean well it's a constant process so i mean it was literally the hardware was changing over the first two years almost on a daily or weekly basis so how long from 
you guys distribute the hardware to someone who's actually using the hardware to get to the first customer. Yeah, but you should start using that hardware really quickly. So, I mean, I'll tell you another little story. We went to um, Dubai uh, to um, because it's a logistics hub, spoke at an event there, had a crowd of people gathered around after the event. Um, then uh, we went back to Switzerland, built some 30 prototypes, put them in my bag, carried them back to Dubai a week later. Most of the time, these prototypes were failing somehow. There was all sorts of quality issues. But in the end, you know, you've got to deliver something. You've got to get the experience. Even if a few of them work, you gather some data. You learn from that. You can iterate. So we went out back out to Dubai. I got arrested, actually, on the entry at the airport because I was carrying 30 prototypes that weren't registered, that nobody knew what they were. And, uh, you know, I went into sort of, you know, various questioning and question sessions with the government. And in the end... You know, they turned somebody. Somebody turned around and said, "How much for a hundred thousand of these?" So it piqued their interest and turned into a sales opportunity. You know, um, so um, and then through that, we met with a bunch of customers, and these were all critical meetings. And it's actually that almost that natural flow of experiences and storytelling that actually takes that hardware to the next place because you need the customer to trust it enough to put it onto their assets to see what it might do to so that we can start gathering real data and then we can start discussing with that you know uh, with them about what that data might do for them so the product is not the hardware the hardware is an enabler the product is the digital or the data driven services that you can create from the platform side and obviously you know the 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 journey of experiences okay we make a hardware device and we sell it oh no that doesn't work oh we make a hardware device but they need front end with dots on the map Oh, but actually they need more than that. They want the data through an API into their own control systems. Oh, their control systems are not sophisticated enough. We need to build the analytics. Oh, but they, you know, it goes on and on like this. And you realize you have to do more and more of this value adding, you know, sort of, um, you know, product building in order to actually sell something. Um, but at the same time, you know, you're able to, with each of these learnings, you're able to maybe do another investment ground and stay alive in order to keep the learning going. So it's kind of like this, you know, um, jockeying really between the investment and the and the clients. So those first customers, they were paying to use the product or they were just beta testing and you guys were not charging them yet? Uh, the first customer that paid was uh, had 300 rail assets. And, uh, you know, obviously... Um, we kind of, you know, we didn't, we weren't very sophisticated with writing contracts, um, but we wanted to make sure that we could prove to our investors that, that there is a value in this and you have to charge for it. And um, one of our ROI meetings was, you know, we sat down with the customer, they were looking at the screen, the first version of the, you know, the, the UI with the dots on the map. And we said, you know, we talked about, let's talk about return on investment. And they suddenly broke into Dutch and started shouting at each other in Dutch and laughing and joking. And after, you know, 15 minutes, I said, hey, my Dutch isn't that great. Can you just, you know, fill me in on what's going on in this room? And uh, they said, well, we've just realized that our rail cars are doing um, a, an extra 80 kilometers in Germany that we never knew about that now we can charge for. So that was a very simple learning about the sophistication of their operations today because they don't. It's So maybe we get into the essence of the value is in transparency for the asset owner to manage their own operations, but also that they can provide transparency to the cargo owner or the shipper that they can actually provide guarantees around their supply chain. So, 
you know, that's probably the, in the essence of what this is about. It's actually creating transparency. Then we unlock another problem, and uh, that is the semantics around a word like transparency. Just because you claim transparency doesn't mean that you provide transparency. Or his version of transparency might be different to my version of transparency. So what's behind the word is kind of the next layer of this discussion. Yeah, let's go deeper on that. What, what, do, what challenges do you find out when? Because I, I find the same thing. When transparency is a different thing for, for each person. Yeah, so you've got things like what's, what level of resolution do you gather the data in, okay? You've got, um, you know, what are the consequences of transparency if you expose the, the true nature of your business to your customer? Um, you have a semantic war. I mean, I've recently learned, or in the past few years, I've learned that there's no um, media that's like authentic, I would say, I have to be careful, but it seems like there's there's no authentic journalism anymore in that everything's for, for, for hire, basically. It's pay to play. And, you know, we took take an example, uh, you know, a few, um, uh, maybe a year or so ago, um, actually less than that, we announced one of the biggest deals that we've ever done, okay? And the first idea of this one million shipping containers or more Uh, you know, we closed a deal with Hapag Lloyd, which is you know, you know, one of our, uh, you know, our premium, uh, you know, clients and partners and and developments, but you know, sort of, uh, I'd say, you know, collaborators in the maritime space because they've now committed to equip their whole fleet um, of shipping containers, which is a wow moment for the whole world, you know. But, um, you know, when we when we released that news, there was something in Forbes about one of our our uh, competitors or possible customers or partners, depending on how the market develops, um, who I would call an aggregator, a data aggregator, a platform player. So no hardware, not creating new data, but using existing data, bringing it together and creating some notion of service and value from this. And, you know, their sort of uh, comments in, in, you know, in the tier one media was that oh fantastic it's just another source of data that we'll in, that we'll ingest or we'll integrate we ingest data from all over the place yeah but hang on a second there's no contracts in place to know that to say so that you can say with confidence that you'll get that data so are you saying that you want to be my customer are you saying that naturally this will just happen that you end up getting the data well you know this is an interesting question then the next thing is you know if you do a lot of fundraising and you spend a big proportion of that fundraising on uh, that budget on branding and marketing, you can blast the world with a word like transparency or visibility, but it doesn't necessarily compete with my real-time, uh, you know, live asset and cargo level transparency or visibility that's coming direct from the asset all the time. So, you know, if you're bringing, let's say, together ports turn in, turn out data with GPS data from trucks that might not be connected to the trailer unit, or if you're bringing, you know, data from uh, third parties or historical data from shippers, but you're not actually able to look in real time at the individual processes of loading and handling around that cargo and around that asset, it doesn't compare. So it looks like to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, that a big differentiator for you guys, it's like, you're like, we're not just going to build a software or a hardware. We're going to build both of them and you're going to get the information to our customers. And could you walk me 
Is that correct? And why did you make the decision if that's the case? Yeah, so it's even more than that, actually, to be honest, Phil. So, I mean, in the end, like, think about a hardware device. Uh, it's essentially the same as a mobile phone that a human uses. Um, we charge our phones every day, okay? Um, obviously, there's a bit more functionality. There's a screen on it. There's lights. There's, you know, there's all kinds of things going on there um, that, uh, you know, need, to need energy. Um, but making hardware that you have to send around, send away around the world, and you're ne not going to see it again until the end of the asset lifetime, and it has to send the data every five minutes to the cloud, uh, is pretty challenging, okay? So you've got your hardware design, which is, you know, obviously learned iteratively through working with the industry partners. And then you've got the uh, device management. You've got the connectivity You've got the firmware, yeah. You've got the the data management, and then you start to get through to the analytics and the business process automation, and then you start talking about building digital twins of the client's assets, of the client's operations, of the client's processes, etc. So to get to that real value or to create that value, there's lots of enablers. Now, unless you have a single partner who can manage most of those steps, you've got to ask questions about the quality of the data. Or whether you can buy a device from Alibaba, you know, for a GPS device for probably 50 bucks. And you could fit it on yourself and you could do, you know, a bit of tweaking and hacking and you could start getting that data. But it's not going to work in three months or 12 months. And it's not going to send the data every five minutes. And it's not going to be secure necessarily. And you're not going to be able to provide the, the you know, the customer with guarantees around safety. For example, you know, all of our devices, they have to be intrinsically safe that they don't trigger a spark because they might be used in an oil and gas environment or where there's petrochemicals or something. So, you know, there's all these considerations and this is about driving the interests of the uh, industry into pushing that into the technology solution to make sure that the, the industry serve properly and that, that we're not going to start creating more problems than we solve. Do you see you guys kind of like as a, as a SaaS, a hardware business? How, how do you see yourself positioning the market spending so much time and money in building those complex hardwares and the infrastructure around managing the assets and everything? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. And I, I, you know, maybe, you know, the issue with bundling or unbundling. Yeah. You know, you, you could either, you can do it one of two ways. You can say, don't worry about the hardware. We take care of that. You know, kind of the Gillette model, you just pay for the service and pay for the data. And, the other version is, you know, you pay something for the hardware and then we, we manage the, you know, the platform for you or we support you with the with creating value from the from the data and, you know, distributing that data, securing the data and so on. But actually, if you think about even just firmware, you know, we've got to make sure that that device health is right. We've got to monitor the device health and, the, you know, we have energy harvesting and we have we're monitoring the hardware all the time to make sure that it's functional because without the hardware, we don't get the data. So, you know, there's a kind of a question of um, bundling or unbundling. Um, but the reality is that, you know, all of those elements are needed in order to create value. And therefore, you know, the client needs a partner who it can trust across all of those areas. Makes sense. Makes sense. So, so you guys are basically the one-stop partner for, for the customer? Yeah, I think we're, we've, we've become that now. I mean, obviously, you know, who else needs the data is an interesting question. You know, if you're managing a shipping container or 
or uh, or cargo through a particular part of of the supply chain. You know, if you do a great, great job because you've got all the data at your disposal and you're making all the right decisions and you're being, you know, you're being efficient in the in the handling and the turnaround of those things. If you pass it across to a partner who then takes two weeks to even put it into their ERP uh, and it's just standing there in a warehouse and nobody knows where it is, uh, then all of the value that you've created is lost. And, you know, maybe we can go jump quickly to, to you know, purpose here. Um, you know, data now, I say data is the asset itself. It's not the, it's not the, the metal box or even the stuff inside of it. It's actually the data that's surrounding it that helps us to make sure that the quality's there and that the, it's going to arrive on time, that it's going to arrive in full, that it's not being tampered with, that there's no illegal activity going on around it. You know, all of these things, they're all, all significant in creating that value. And if you take a look around and you look at the things in your room, you know, this pen or this glass or, you know, this microphone that I'm using, all of these things in a way came out of the ground. We process raw materials in factories. We create value. And this takes energy. And actually, you know, it's outrageous that, you know, we send coffee from Kenya to, you know, Hamburg or Kenya to Los Angeles. And, you know, on the way, it needs maybe 100 documents to be stamped or processed or signed or faxed or sent or photographed or emailed. And, you know, actually, you know, these processes should be automated. And, the worst bit is that, you know, we see this stuff, you know, things like coffee or whatever you think is valuable in your own mind. And, you know, it, we send it on its way and it gets broken, it gets damaged, it gets lost, it gets stolen en route. It's not acceptable anymore. We keep talking about sustainability. We keep talking about, you know, our values, uh, uh, you know, in this, uh, you know, sort of evolved world where we realize, you know, what we're talking all the time about what value is, but also what our values are. And, you know, this is just not acceptable. So this is the, the, you know, this is jump on board because this is the way to solve it by using data, applying data, and by distributing data so that everybody can do a better job and we can push up quality and sustainability and, you know, route finding and reduce the number of empty assets that are traveling around and make sure that that stuff that's valuable to us arrives in the best quality and the best state possible so that it can be used by the next people in the chain. Yeah, at the end of the day, what you're trying to do is control the experience. So, so it's a seamless experience for everybody. It's kind of like what Steve Jobs did when with Apple. He was like, no, I'm going to make the hardware. I'm going to make the software. I'm going to make the box because I want to really control the experience of how people see my products. And you basically, you're trying to apply that to supply chain. Why you don't have like a seamless experience that that everyone knows where it is. It's a consistency of experience. You're absolutely right. And why do we make the device? If you look on our website, you know, nexyot.com, you'll see the hardware there. It, it, it looks quite sexy, okay? And we do that for a reason because, you know, the supply chain is not traditionally considered to be a sexy place, but there's brilliant people who deserve some sexy products. And it's not just in the hardware, but it's also in the functionality. It's the on the onboarding and the pairing of that hardware. It's the, in the installation. Uh, it's a, in the unboxing process. So it's all physical as well. But then it's into the applications and then into the usability and then into the way that we can share that data. So actually, it's a really great analogy you said there with the Steve Jobs experience because, you know, um, in a way, um, Silicon Valley stopped making hardware. Um, 
I say that with caution because Apple's still one of the biggest companies in the world. And, you know, I absolutely love my iPhone 14 Pro. Um, it's, it's one of the most complete realizations of a, of a technology concept that I've ever seen possibly since the Samurai Sword or something like that. Yeah, although we've moved on from, you know, from, from, from such things. But, um, you know, in a way, um, actually, um, you know, Microsoft and IBM, they were built on hardware. So hardware was built and then they sold, you know, Microsoft uh, Windows 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8 to every business school. And, you know, and this is how the money was made. SAP, uh, you know, wasn't a hardware. Uh, that was just a pure platform, but they were selling consulting hours. And the, f the point is, we still live in a physical world, you know, so... Uh, there needs to be a hardware element. And if that hardware is not there, then what can you really do? And actually, if you think about the internet, you know, we, we were very good in the first stages of the internet from the moment that the first developers, you know, did a hello world and sent a, you know, a, a pixely picture of a cat. Um, you know, humans have been connecting to humans through, you know, uh, business email, business applications, and then into, you know, social media and so on. But actually, we're still in the infancy of building out the internet. We need to build a physical internet. We need to interact with the objects that are important and turn those things into agents. So we're talking about digital agents and we're talking about digital twins. So, you know, the first digital twin was already 30 years or 40 years ago for a, a, you know, a Rolls Royce or a Boeing engine on an airplane. So they knew what to fix when it lands. Well, it's not that different. Now, with our hardware device, we put that onto a rail car. The rail car becomes a digital twin and it can announce itself. I'm available. I need to send an invoice. You know, I, I, I need to be serviced. I've got a problem with my brakes. OK, and all these types of things. So, you know, now we've added a new deal recently with, with uh, Knorr Bremse, which is one of the biggest manufacturers of brakes in the world. And like I said before, where, you know, these big players are, are looking for a sophisticated um, you know, uh, uh, platform or basis for bringing their data to the next level to their clients and to the market and to their partners and so on, then, you know, Knorbrems are probably half of the things that break in the world, that slow down in the world, trucks and trains and so on. You know, these things are using Knorbrems or brakes and they're going to be bringing that data onto the Nexiot platform because they can see the scalability and the value that we can create. So you brought something up. You think Silicon Valley stopped building software uh, hardware and now everyone is just building software. Why do you think that is? It's a little bit about what you talk about, like maybe it's kind of like this not sex industry. It's kind of boring. Why, why do you think that is that that happened? I think uh, there was like a trend where everybody wanted to build asset light investments. So software is less risky. Uh, the Internet's built. We started to see, you know, the the rise of of um, of cloud computing um Everyone saw the the ease and the the value of things like Snapchat. Um, you know, it's relatively simple to build something that's scalable just purely in the software world that doesn't need that. You know, that even just the version control on hardware, uh, the supply chain for getting access to the chips is an issue. Um, managing safety standards when they don't exist. You know, you've got to actually sit there. You know, in these, you know, world shipping councils and digital container shipping association and all of these, you know, bodies and govern governance organizations and work through these questions together with them. And this is, you know, it, it doesn't suit the average, uh, you know, software guy that comes out of, uh, you know, education because they want something fast. 
They want to be able to see a prototype quickly. Uh, and, and it's quite sophisticated to build so many different elements in the technology chain. Do you think there's a big opportunity there for people that maybe is going to get out of just software and try to get in the real physical world and build products that, that connect the physical world with the digital world? I think it's extremely tough uh, because there's so much complexity. Uh, if you see a company, for example, like Nest, um, you know, in some cases, uh, you know, it's obvious that it's needed, um, but the, you know, the adoption is limited to uh, the early adopters, and then it's difficult to get it to go over that boundary into mainstream. Um, it's pos possibly easier in the B2B space, but I don't think that it's easy to build hardware on its own. It's easier to build hardware as an enabler for a, for a platform or for a SaaS-type business. Makes sense. And, and I think everything is a little bit easier in the B2B space. It's the, it's the place to start uh, any kind of product. You need less customers to start you only need one big one as opposed to you know a million small ones individuals but it doesn't spread virally yeah you've got to pick up the phone it's a hundred phone calls a day you know and you also can prove roi right because when you deliver the, the final customer is you're taking money out of his his paycheck when you're dealing with a business you're adding back time you are adding back efficiency or, or something that's going to create value so you're not just an expense, you become an investment. That's what's different also in the B2B space. Correct. But it's also how you frame the investments as well, because is it an infrastructure investment? Uh, is it a strategic investment? Or is it, a, you know, I want to see solid ROI before I go ahead um, and make any investment. And, you know, unless you can get, you know, uh, customers to believe that this is the future, and you bear, bear in mind, this is a long journey. You know, it's an iterative journey, like I talked about before. And, uh, you know, it's uh, in a way you've got to be patient enough and be a networker enough to build an ecosystem. You can't just work with an individual customer because there's this very heavy risk that you become like a zombie SaaS company that is just serving one client and that you're actually almost a plaything for them, uh, an R&D workshop, because they just want to see the things that are relevant for them and not actually for the market as a whole. So if you make a statement, I want to digitize global supply chain, you know, where do you start with that? It sounds ridiculous, you know, but you start really small and you start, you know, in our case with a hardware device or with a concept around hardware. And then through our learnings, it extended into a platform and then into an ecosystem. But actually, to be honest, you know, the, what I always say is that you build a culture and that culture is driven by values from the culture you build a, a brand, and from the brand, you leverage that for, for investment. You build the product, which is according to the values of the brand, which is quality and sustainability and, and so on, and you know, and, uh, usability. So back to that experience that you talked about before. And then obviously you attract the clients because you bring something that they can believe in because you've got, in, in a sense, in the B2B space, you've got two types of client. You've got, you know, within the organization, you've got, the naysayers who say it's always been this way. Why should we change it? And you have the the digital generation or the or the the you know the innovative thinkers who say you know for sure we should have this. It's too late already. Yeah, and you brought up like a point that's very important. That's the challenge of B two B too, especially like if you go after those big big accounts, and then the one account's paying the bill, but you want to build a company that's scalable and that's not 
fragile because if you have only one customer, that company is fragile. And so, so that's one of the biggest challenges. You have to figure out how to not be serving just the one customer and you have to be watching your customer ratio. You can have all your eggs in one basket. And so like, if you figure out how to go those, we call those the wells, those, those bigger customers, we have to figure out how to serve more than one. And I think it, it, that becomes a challenge. It's great. You stay in business because now you're making money, but for how long? It's, you have to be quick to adapt before uh, you just become like a, a fragile company, a company that's not going to live long term. Correct. Because you know what? Just think about it. With a big company, um, one one case scenario is that, um, you know, you could have uh, a situation where you've got, um, you sign a, sign a contract and you're delighted because it's maybe a whale as you, as you describe it, yeah? But um, within no time at all, they own you because you signed something in that service level agreement that means that if you weren't able to deliver on one of these points, then the IP is transferred to them. There are those kinds of contracts and it's pretty stressful to, to go through that. And, and that's maybe I would even say if you can figure out a way to start with not the biggest customers, but the, a little bit smaller. So those contracts are not so. Yeah. So I would say like this, it's exponential. The size of your customer should be exponentially growing. So our first customer was probably, you know, a couple of devices just to try it. Okay. So like when I told you about, you know, my trips and then it was this first one with maybe 300 devices on 300 assets, but a high value use case. So if something can really go wrong potentially. And then the next one is maybe 70,000. So it goes from 300 to 70,000 because you've proven it on the 300 case. And now you need to pitch that 70,000 guy, which seems like a whale at the time, but just around the corner is one with 1.5 million. I love that too. Like the whale of today is not the whale of tomorrow. That's something that I have to realize. And if that's not changing, maybe you're not, you're not developing. So there's a question that I love to ask every guest. What's the first oh shit moment that come to mind from the early days of your company? The first oh shit moment, yeah? <laughs> yeah. I think it was the realization that it's really complex to do something like this because it seems simple at first. Yeah. You've just have a simple idea. We make devices, we sell them. Okay. But then you just realize that, you know, that you're way out of your depth. You know, you have no knowledge of your customer's needs and, you know, you really have to change fast or you run out of time. So, you know, this kind of burn rate versus iteration and, you know, the energy that takes to, to drive that through those first formative years, you're like, oh, shit, what have I signed up to? But you're already on the path and you already know by now that you can't go and work in a boring corporate environment and have, a, you know, have one of these bullshit jobs. What is kind of like the first very smart decision that come to your mind that, that you made in those early days? To read... A couple of books, I would say, Lean B2B and Business Model Generation to understand the business model canvas and the way you can play with this. Um, and, you know, it's basically, you know, look, if somebody else has, has, has thought of that first, it's a bit like the Matrix, plug me in. Yeah, and how about, I, I love those books. They're great books and I think everyone should read. And how about a very bad decision that you made in the early days? I don't think there are any bad decisions because everything's a bad decision until you learn from it. So it's a bit like, you know, um, 
you know, there's obviously conflict, there's obviously politics, there's obviously huge challenges, there's obviously you constantly make mistakes. But like your view on yourself and the way that you're learning and whether it is a mistake or not, it's not a mistake if tomorrow you've, you've fixed it or changed. So, uh, you know, the, I guess the bad decisions, you know what you're getting yourself in for if, you, if you're looking deep inside your heart, yeah? And actually, you know, in, in a way to say that it's a bad decision is kind of outsourcing it, yeah? Yeah. And in a way, it's no bad decision. It's basically just did I learn or not? It was it's a learning exp experience. That's how you see it. Yeah, exactly. It, it's only bad if you didn't learn anything from. Yeah, and then <laughs> and if you didn't learn anything from it, then you're then you're already it's over because you don't have the right mindset. And like talking about yourself, like if you could go back in time, 2015, meet yourself, you have an hour with yourself. What would you What would you tell to yourself? I'd say you you must be mad like everybody else. I'd laugh in my own face. Um, Uh, I would I would have a serious talking to myself about whether this is what I really want. And then I'd decide that I do. And then I'd keep going and do everything the same as I did. <laughs> That's great. We talk a little bit about the orange story, but how does the company look today? If you could talk a little bit about size yeah, and so what's the future look like for you guys? Yeah, so we're in an incredible moment right now because, um, you know, we've got this beautiful culture where people, it's magnetic. People join um because it's the only company that they can see themselves working at. After they look around, you know, why would you go and work for a big tech company that's already well established? Because, you know, you're not going to be able to move the needle. Um, you're not going to have the inventive freedom. Everybody within this company can come up with any idea today, and it will be happening tomorrow if it's a smart idea, okay? And then the next thing is we have, uh, we're based here in Switzerland. We've got offices around the world. We've got offices in Dallas and so on as well. But it really is like being in a family. And I don't say that in a crass way either. You know, every, you hear everyone say that they it's like a family, the family of, you know, whatever company. But actually, you know, we've got 30 or 40 nationalities in our organization. And, um, you know, we've got extremely diverse backgrounds and skills. And I would say that that diversity is like the lifeblood of our organization because, you know, we've got people who've worked, you know, who've been in the in the military or in in uh, in. Um, you know, diplomacy, or we've got people who've been in, in biotech, or we've got people who were looking for the Higgs boson in the data that comes from CERN, from the Large Hydrogen Collider. And we've got people who, you know, came as a student uh, to glue some things together in the first days, building those first devices. And they've it, it reinvented themselves five times. And now they're owner of, you know, they're product owners. And, you know, it's just like this, you know, where people feel it, they join, And they evolve with the organization and, you know, there's nothing out of bounds and people are not getting offended by things that people say. And, you know, we're able to challenge ourselves extremely honestly. And, you know, sometimes it, you have to really work on your ego and swallow, the, swallow your pride. But, you know, if anybody, you know, loses their shit and, you know, becomes, um, you know, uh, sort of rude or aggressive in this environment, then it just would not, it wouldn't feel comfortable for them. It would be a no-go. You know, there's no chance we're, You know, we're working together for a common goal. So, you know, our our purpose is easier, safer, cleaner. Uh, and, you know, we basically, you know, this means making it more efficient. It means driving up safety metrics. And it means making, um, you know, the, 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 the world a more sustainable place. So everybody can buy into that. It's not one of these long sentences that everyone's forgotten what it means after the first, you know, few weeks. That we know it's absolutely clear, but really it's about respect, it's about trust, 
It's about quality and it's about freedom. You know, our people should feel really free uh, and therefore entrepreneurial, almost like they're building startups within a scale up, something like this. Yeah, because it's growing and changing and growing and changing. Uh, it comes down to trust and, 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 and values, I think. So it looks like you guys are in the innovation stage. You're in the stage of the company where there's a lot of innovation happening, where there's a lot of, where people can really uh, have a big impact on where the company is. So how big is the organization in name a number of people? Yeah, we've got like 130, 140 people. Um, but actually we run very lean because most people have multiple skills and they work in kind of these squads and cross, you know, it's not like matrix organized, but it's like uh, there's a lot of cross pollination of ideas all the time. And um, I, I would say that we've always been in the innovation stage because we're extremely innovative. But I would say that we're in the scale phase now and we're in the deployment execution phase. We're currently producing, you know, we're producing the devices that go on to 1.5 million shipping containers. Uh, this is you know, extremely, you have to have meticulous process, processes and extremely high quality in every stage of that manufacturing and delivery process. We you know we got to install them around 50 different locations around the world. So, you know, we're, we're punching a little bit, but we're, we're, we're adapting really fast and we're innovating. Yes. But also it's very serious because we've got to execute. That's fascinating, Dan. Thank you very much for, for sharing this story and for sharing where you guys are. And I'm excited to keep watching you guys grow. So if anyone wants to learn more about you and about you guys, what's the best way to follow you? Yeah, so have a look at nexiot.com. That's our website, N-E-X-X-I-O-T.com. Look up Dan McGregor, Nexiot, uh, same spelling, obviously, on LinkedIn. Um, I also have a, my own podcast called The Wise Machine. So if you search that, you'll find that on all the podcast platforms. And, you know, we're just finding our legs with that. Uh, not quite as professional as you are yet, Phil, but, you know, we're getting there. And certainly I appreciate your great questions today and uh, your, you know, your personal interest in this because, you know, it helps me to communicate the value and values and the passion that we have, uh, you know, to, to change the world. And um, we can really fix a lot of things, you know, okay, what's the, what's the outcome I want to achieve? We want to reduce global emissions from the supply chain. By what percentage, it's difficult to say because we didn't know exactly what it was before, but it's significant, okay? Next thing, we want to make sure that we guard uh, global trades data to make sure that we have normal, uh, you know, adjustment in the, in the markets around commodities and things like this. And the final thing is that we want to optimize human activity on the planet by a significant percentage as well. And that means, you know, about addressing this gray energy and the waste that's gone into manufacturing and that it's not actually delivered to the people that need it. So, you know, we have to preserve our value uh, and we have to also create a template where we can have fun and enjoy each other's company and develop meaningful things. That's a great mission. I'm sure you guys are going to do very well accomplishing that. I'm going to keep following you. Again, thank you very much for, for being here today. It was a pleasure chatting with you and learning more about your business. Uh, thanks so much for having me. I look forward to our next uh, contact. Yeah. Thank you. SaaS Origin Stories is brought to you by DevSquad. To find out more about how we help entrepreneurs launch new products and help larger businesses plug in a ready-to-go development team, visit devsquad.com. Add us to your rotation by searching for SaaS Origin Stories in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Make sure to click follow so you don't miss any future episodes. Thanks for listening and remember, 
Every SaaS hero has an origin story. 